Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. For more information, visit culturecity.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. And welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Carmen DeVito. And I'm Alice Marcus Craig. And we are the Ladies of Groundworks, Inc. We design and build gardens in and around New York City. And our show aims to bring some culture to horticulture. We do. So we're about to start planting thousands, tens of thousands <laughs> of bulbs. Um, not Alice and I personally, um, but our gardeners. Wet knees. Yeah. Oh, it's been dry, so yeah. we've been super lucky. And um, we always try to find different things and new varieties. So as I was trolling around the internet earlier this month looking for different tulips or narcissus, I found this one called Bud Light. Okay. <laughs> and I, and I looked and I said, what could it be? And that tempted me, yeah. you know, it's from John Sheepers, a, a reputable, you know, bulb company from Holland. So I clicked on it and it's basically a yellow tulip with a fringe of white. So uh-huh. basically like a kind of super pale yellow with a white foam. So anyway, I thought it was cute. If you guys want to see what it actually looks like, we posted the photo on our Facebook page, Groundworks Inc. We did plants. And it was just very and let's funny. let's just hope Anheuser-Busch doesn't get a word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's just funny that you can, you know, they, they used to have names that were like Dutch or named after princesses or like, right. you know, all kinds of unusual names. But Bud Light was a kind of, <laughs> And I thought to myself, why would they do that? Maybe they're trying to attract more men to Could the be. gardening but scene. yellow and white are not men colors. <laughs> no, but you know what? It's not a bad looking tulip. Right. You know, so anyway, if you want to put some Bud Light in your garden, <laughs> you can get some at Sheepers. I like uh, to drink Bud Light after I garden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, other news, um, the Horticultural Society of New York, which has a very special place in both of our hearts. That's where Alice and I met. That's where we worked. Um, for many and because years. I started the exhibition and exactly Alice <laughs> started the exhibition department they are continuing with the tradition and they're having later this week the second annual art and nature symposium featuring heirloom harvest by Amy Goldman um, it's a who's book- a, an amazing she has amazing photography in oh, all of her books yes and these are daguerreotype photographs of heirloom vegetables yeah. and they're spectacular so the event the book talk and reception is november 4th 2015 i'm sure that amy goldman has been on this station like probably more than once um it's going to be at the new york design center at 200 lexington avenue at 5 p.m so this was um and then it's going to be followed by the 18th annual 
um, International American Society of Botanical Artists exhibition, which Alice right. also started with the Horticultural Society of New York. Yeah. So, but those daguerreotypes are going to be really cool. Yeah, and her work is beautiful. If you've ever seen any of her books, she is—it's vegetable porn. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it totally is porn. And speaking of porn, all right, <laughs> um, I just want. <laughs> Our engineer just looked at me and was like cross-eyed. No, no. Well, this is not. It just I, I, my brain works in weird ways. But so I listened to. You're talking about drinking Bud Light and now porn. Come on, Carl. No, I'm out. It's a family-friendly show. I don't know about that. After what I've listened, I so I I, in early October I said I'm going to listen to 30 shows, 30 heritage shows in 30 days. Right. Uh huh. So now I've I've listened to 31 shows. Okay, Okay. I've more than reached my goal and I'm still not done. There's more shows to go. But I wanted to share some of my favorites um, with you. And this is where the porn comes in. Okay, there is no person on air that has a sexier voice than Chef Eric on the on the Roberta's radio. I have a total audio crush on him. I'm sure he's not listening to the show right now, but I was just like he the show is so funny. It has nothing to do with pizza. It has nothing to do with food. It's just Roberta's radio. I forget what day it's on. Okay. But he has got the most listenable voice. Do you I, imagine what he looks like? I'm trying to I, I hope he's here right now. Like I want to match the face to the voice. So Or maybe it's not a good idea. I don't know. Maybe I should keep it like in a fantasy. So listen if you and and such a funny show. So I highly recommend Roberta's radio. And then Brianna Kurtz has a great show too called Native. Her topic I love everything about the show. The topic, the music Um, you know, she picks like a region and she talks about, you know, she travels to this like virtual place, you know, so she virtually travels to this place, let's say Thailand, and she talks about the food and the culture Uh there. And it's such a great, like great show. Escape. Yeah. It's wonderful. And then finally, um, I have to give a shout out to Dorothy Can Hamilton. Um, her, her show is on Wednesdays and it's called Chef Story and she is the consummate pro. She is so good at you know, wrangling her guests and doing transitions and interesting topics and really good questions. So another really good show, Chef Story. Good. To. All right. Enough plugging of other people, right? <laughs> now let's talk about plants. Um, so for the fall winter season, you know, Alice and I always kind of slow down. We think, we plan after all the like crazy frenzy of the spring and the like exhausting work of summer maintenance, we get to actually look and see our gardens in a kind of more pleasurable way i think yeah and use our brain and And use our brain in a broader perspective yeah Yeah. and and we kind of we kind of can breathe enough and and to to enjoy the gardens that we've created that year or previously so this fall um for some of our shows alice and i wanted to bring you some guests who reflected that idea of taking the time to be more thoughtful about how we use the landscape and you know go a little bit deeper into what the plant world brings to our lives, right? You know, so one person um, that reflects that spirit is today's guest, Brie N. Glovner Arthur, otherwise known as Brie. Right. And we've been following Brie for a while now, and we finally got an opportunity to meet her last year at the Garden Writers Association Conference in Pittsburgh. Brie, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Brie, you um, are really like the poster child, I think, for <laughs> yeah. for young people yeah. emerging into 
the industry. Yeah. And you are doing some really fun things. Um, so I wanted to give a li- our listeners a little bit about your background before we start talking. And what you're up to. <laughs> you're originally from southeastern Michigan, and you studied landscape design at Purdue before moving to North Carolina in 2002. You've worked in almost every aspect of horticulture with some of the most prestigious gardens and plant professionals in the country, including Montrose Gardens, Plant Delights Nursery, and Camellia Forest Nursery. And you are the foodscaping and landscape design correspondent on the PBS television show Growing a Greener World. Um, And that is filmed on your one-acre suburban foodscape land. Um, And you give practical advice on integrating edibles in a traditional ornamental landscape design using all organic growing techniques. So you are also the founder of Emergent, which is a group for growing professionals um, working to encourage all green industry members to reach their fullest potential. And you write a column, The Tip Jar, in the trade magazine Nursery Management. And one of your newest ventures is Foodscaping University, which is a current initiative to educate the local community on sustainable organic growing in the suburban landscape. And that is the aspect that I've been following most closely because I love what you're doing on your ranch house in the middle of North Carolina. (laughs) So I'm convinced, Bree, I'm convinced that you have a twin because there's no way that one person can do as much as you do. Do you have a twin sister? Like a... (laughs) You're amazing. So we want to go a little bit into, we have a lot to cover today because you do so much, but I want to start with your history. I always like to ask people why they choose horticulture as a career because people don't choose it to make money (laughs) right well that's so true uh you know i was fortunate growing up in rural midwest of of southeastern michigan to have 4-h as an influence in my life right on and we didn't have you know livestock and things we were transplants to that region but i grew flowers so that i could still participate in the county fair and so I really think Econops Retro is at the heart of my love <laughs> oh. of horticulture. <laughs> oh, that's my favorite plant. Oh, that's so great. That's a, that's <laughs> so good. So you grew the Econops. Uh-huh. And did you win? I did. I got a sweepstakes at the county fair, and it was like one of those proud moments that I can always go back to, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So then... Um, I, I just need to ask you, my, I have family all over Michigan as well, um, Bree, and we're, we're up north. We're in, like, Traverse City and um, Lansing and Grand Rapids and Petoskey. Um, you're, where are you in Michigan? Well, I grew up in, in Monroe, Michigan, in which Monroe. is just south of Detroit, north of Toledo, right on Lake Erie. Yeah, my cousin is actually a state trooper. Um, in in Monroe. <laughs> oh, it's such a small world. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, tell us some of the obstacles and challenges that you faced as um, a young person in the career. Well, you know, it's, it is a career that we often say you, you get into because of your love and your passion. And in, in, in the same sentence, we usually say, because we don't earn very much money. Right. And that has certainly been the case. And, 
you know, I think some of the biggest obstacles when you're just coming out of college is dealing with the debt you've accrued to receive a bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. Then you enter a profession that, you know, doesn't really have um, a pay raise structure or in a lot of cases I call horticulture the Wild West. Yeah. But we're a big industry. We're not necessarily well organized from a small business perspective. Um, so in my early days, I found that diversity in my income was probably my my best way of earning a living in this industry, and that continues today, 15 years since I started as a full-time employee. Mm-hmm. So, I was just going to say, it's interesting that you studied landscape design um, and that you went into the kind of ornamental horticulture side of it, working with nurseries, um, but... Do you do much design work or because I, I know you're an amazing marketer for plants. Like that's how I think of you. <laughs> well, I like to think of myself as a marketer of all things that horticulture brings. Right. But, you know, my passion, which I didn't realize when I was in college because I had limited experience, but really was in estate gardening, which I did at Montrose, where we would develop these extensive gardens and produce the plants that we were using. And I realized that I loved plant propagation. And so for the last 10 years of my career, that was my primary full-time focus at nurseries. And I've designed on the side uh, through my own small business, keeping it small and localized, which is, of course, where I feel I'm kind of a plant expert. I can't give advice nationally, but I, I know Central North Carolina very well. I've been here 13 years, uh-huh. and all I've done is grow plants. I'm not well-rounded. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, but you're so... Oh, I, but, I, I mean, I'm going to have to disagree with yeah, that, Brie. <laughs> I think if you're, if you're growing and propagating plants and foodscaping in your front lawn like that is yeah. well, extremely well well you, you yeah but you're getting more well-rounded as well you know so yeah and i think and and that you know we alice and i come from the design end too and uh-huh. it comes from and alice has an art history background i have a business background it's very interesting a lot of people in horticulture sometimes come from different places you know, and even ones that are in the, you know, study horticulture go down diverse paths. Don't you think that's true? Absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest opportunities that this industry presents to young, uh, to young professionals because you can be very successful with a diverse background, particularly with your education, focusing on business and marketing because I think that's the area that our industry probably needs the most help yeah. with uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. yeah well uh, one of the classes that we took um when we were at the <clears throat> symposium in pittsburgh um at the gwa conference you were a moderator and you were talking about social networking yeah. um and all the opportunities that the internet can bring to horticulture and and all the visibility that that is available um and so you started this group called emergence and actually you started it with a friend of ours todd carr yeah yeah so carmen and i know todd um from many many years ago we had a store in williamsburg and he was our like designer yeah he worked with us. he worked with us and then we helped him move on to bob highland and andrew beckman and uh loomis creek nursery which then launched his career but um you uh, and he started that, and it's a really great 
forum. Um, and I love your kind of topics that come out online um, and all the things that you just kind of throw out there and invite people to respond to. And I think it's been wildly terrific. It's such a thrill that it took off. I remember the day that, that actually it was a night that Todd and I were Facebook messaging back and forth. And we had no idea that it would be so well received. And, you know, I really find those discussions to be enlightening. I was recently at the International Plant Propagators meeting and posted the question about membership, professional membership, and do people feel that there is value? And it was it was really important for our in-real-time discussion at that meeting to have that, you know, the opinions flowing in and gave us some great insights to try to figure out ways that we can accommodate younger people, maybe not in the traditional forum, but mm-hmm. using online services. Yes, in fact, there was just, I think I think it might have been in the Washington Post or another um, newspaper. I don't recall exactly where I read it. It was specifically about plant societies, Brie. And yeah. how, um, you know, the aging, the, they're, re- they're reducing in size. Fewer people are joining. You know, the average age of the member is getting up and up. Yeah. And they are having to reinvent, re- redefine what it means to be a member. You know, you, you, and, and, you know, they explained how, look, you know, when, when these societies were formed 100 years ago, 50 years ago, people had more time because there was a dad, there was a mom at stay at home, and she could spend, you know, and they also had more space. So she had time and she also had land, right? So she could, you know, like propagate different chrysanthemums mm-hmm. and then show them at a show. Who has time for that anymore? Do you know what I mean? Who well, has that's the space? certainly the case with the Camellia Society, which yeah. I've had experience with. And I just have to say that those competitions don't meet my emotional needs for what, <laughs> yeah. what membership yeah. is. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's generational. Like, yeah. I'm not motivated to win Crystal and China in a you know, plant competition. Right. I would rather have a collaborative session where we're all figuring out how to make it so everybody is addicted to horticulture as we are. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. And I think those, as to the point, you're, the societies have to reinvent themselves. They can't uh-huh. just have, they need to have virtual meetings. They need to have like a very different way of interacting with potential members. Well, yeah. because, I mean, Carmen and I spoke at the Gisneriad Society yes. like a year and a half ago, and we we were the youngest people in the room. Yeah. The, the group was amazing, and Carmen and I said, oh, my God, the people in this room know more about propagation than, than, than any other home gardener that I've ever met. You yeah, know? I mean, and they're passionate people, it's too. It's very sad that these... That the le- that the information isn't being passed down anymore, right. um, and that people are having to, you know, I mean, you go to the internet and it's all right there, and and you have to do your research and you have to talk with nursery men, but and nursery people, but it's it's kind of sad that these, I mean, the Hort Society of New York was founded because of you know old gentlemen that wanted to talk about daffodil variety, you know, yes. and it was yeah. Mr. Astor and Mr. Rockefeller and. And those, you know, huge titans, but that's time and money. And that 
is what our society, I think, is Well, we're, we're is we, like you said, Brie, your generation is not motivated by the same things. They, right. don't, want, they don't want crystals. They, they don't want, you know, plates to put in their kitchen wall they, or in their <laughs> right. china cabinet. We have to find out, and I think that's what you're doing with your group Emergent, yeah. a whole new paradigm of how to engage people, right? And that's why yeah. we really wanted to have you on the show because we need people to reinvent and reinvigorate horticulture, right? It yeah. can't be the same old thing, you know? And it's great to have those white-haired people with all the knowledge, but if they're not plugged in... Yeah, literally. To, to literally right. and figuratively to what you all are doing, it is going to disappear. So you know? I want to I take a break, and then I want to come back, and Brie, I, I want you to set, do a little, a little uh, set design virtual set design about the front of your house yes. and things that you are doing yep. to stimulate the horticulture industry. Excellent. You're listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Culture City, a for-purpose organization that provides a place of acceptance and support for all autism families. This is Culture City's founder, Julian Maha. Culture City was really born out of uh, necessity. You know, it was born when my, uh, you know, currently six-year-old boy was diagnosed with autism. Uh, his name is Abram and he's non-verbal. And even though my wife and I were both physicians at the time, it was really hard for us to find any resources at that point to help him. All the other organizations out there that we know of, um, they do phenomenal work, but their main focus is basically finding a cure for autism. Our main focus is basically trying to prepare the community to accept not only children with autism, but their families as well. You know, in addition to that, we also want to provide help to these families in the here and now. You know, so tangible things like, you know, iPads for nonverbal kids, you know, financial scholarships, uh, therapy scholarships, you know, art camps, and also some um, lecture series that can teach parents about, you know, dietary issues, um, you know, how to financially plan and things like that. For more information, visit culturecity.org. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to We Dig Plants on Heritage Radio Network. Today we have an amazing guest, Bree Govna Arthur from North Carolina, who started a group called Emergent, the new generation of gardeners. And Bree, I want Carmen and I want to stop talking so much, and we want you to yeah. tell our listeners about the suburban grain experiment. Yes. <laughs> Well, the suburban grain experiment is my ridiculous passion project that I've become obsessed with in the past year. I'm, you know, I, at Garden Writers in Pittsburgh, as you mentioned before, I had a great conversation with Rosalind Creasy, who everyone should recognize as the woman who really started the edible landscaping movement back in the 1970s. And she was telling me about how she grows just enough wheat in her suburban yard, you know, in Northern California, 
to, to supply four fresh loaves of bread for New Year's Eve. And she does this as an activity that engages all the children in her neighborhood. And I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, I have this great space that I had planted with ornamental grass, mostly pink muley, and all of it had died in the previous winter because we have a very high water table here on the opposite of the West Coast in southern, in the southeast U.S. Uh-huh. And um, I, I said, well, I really want the movement that the ornamental grass provides me. And she said, well, grow something useful. Grow grains. <laughs> and, I mean, from that moment in August of 2014, I have thought nothing other than anywhere I see an open space, grains <laughs> need to be put in. Uh-huh. <laughs> so what are you but, growing? Yeah, I started realizing that the local foods movement, at least down here in the southeast, doesn't involve carbohydrate resources. And there's no reason that we can't grow supplemental amounts of carbohydrates in the southeast. We have a great condition for growing winter wheat. We can right. grow rice through the summer. Corn and soy grows very well. And I thought, these are all the things that get completely ignored at the garden center. Like right. You can't often even find seeds for those plants at garden centers, let alone plants that have already been started. Right. They're beautiful. They're low maintenance. Now, harvesting and processing might be a different story, but as from an ornamental design aspect, I have yet to grow anything more beautiful than winter wheat. And I felt very patriotic in, in uh, May and June going out, taking photographs of the amber waves of grain that divided <laughs> my front yard from the road space yeah. to the private space. It was really incredible. So and, I, I have to ask you, how did your neighbors respond? Because yeah. you are in a suburban environment. And, and right? let, let me just describe the photos that I've seen. Basically, you took a huge swath. Tell us how big is it? And it's right through the front yard of your house, right? It is. So this is a design element that I learned of from Chanticleer Garden when I first visited there, gosh, back in 2004. Mm-hmm. And they called it the wave. Uh-huh. And I had started doing this in my personal designs for lots of residential settings that have deep yards so that it increases their ability to add shade trees so that it's not right up on the house. It's, you know, about 50 foot off of the house, and it splits the front yard in half. So you have a public front space and a private front space. Right. So I have six different uh, shade trees planted, including Acer triflorum, Prunus mumei, a live oak, Quercus virginiana. Um, but I had all this ground space, you know, all the the understory, and I extended it from a little bit a little wider than I had it when it was just planted with ornamental grasses. So it's 10 foot deep, and it's 85 foot long. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, it's one of those spaces that if I was trying to just keep it with trees and mulch, I would have a huge weed problem. That's right. And I don't want to put out unnecessary herbicides. So I thought, well, I learned this working at Montrose. If you create these living ground covers that you grow from seed, you can keep the weed pressure down. You have this beautiful show in the spring. Mm-hmm. And so I learned doing that with pepaver somnifrum and nigella and larkspur. So I just added wheat to the mix. Well, it turns out <laughs> wheat is completely amazing mixed with all those purple flowers. And you get this, like, English cottage garden look. 
with the cost of like five dollars right. in materials because you're literally just sewing it in place and letting nature take its course mm-hmm. so, so this year i've developed a, a broader spectrum to increase the biodiversity in these grain spaces to include carrots and cilantro because they also bolt in the spring and have beautiful white flowers and all different brassicaceae plants so uh, chard and kale, mustards, so that we'll have those bright yellow spikes intermingling. I think it's going to be the most beautiful thing that anyone will have ever seen. <laughs> and so I, you haven't gotten any pushback from the neighbors. They, they've, I they've haven't. Learned. In fact, they've had me take over our entryway. <laughs> really? And I call it the, the edible entry. Uh-huh. Yes, and I remember. so right now yeah. it's filled with this beautiful mix of purple leaf mustard, larkspur, and winter weed. And it's just a solid ground cover right now, and it's, it's bright, and it's lively, and, and it's very low maintenance. I won't have to do anything to it, really, for the whole rest of the season. Um, I'm sure you know about a man named Pearl and how he changed the whole town with his topiaries and his vision. I feel like you're going to do the same thing with wheat. <laughs> and- oh, gosh, fingers crossed. I would love to have free range to just, like, be the, be the seed scatterer through Fuquay Marina, North Carolina. I think it's going to happen. like a life goal for me. I think, I think it's going to happen, Brie. And also, you planted sorghum. Yes. Which is, uh, my, my parents are from the, my dad's from the south, and sorghum is a, is a big staple in our house. So I was very excited. they there you are bringing in these these like heritage um, grains right into the front yard and into the suburban landscape. It's just an incredible vision visionary project. Well, I appreciate that. I'll tell you, the response has been incredible. I had countless Mother's Day photos and graduation and prom pictures taken in front of the wheat. <laughs> and everybody was so fascinated to see the sorghum and the bloody butcher corn grow yeah. together. Uh-huh. But for the first 30 days, they looked identical. It was amazing how these two plants that are actually different genus can be so similar. Uh-huh. And then, you know, as the differences became apparent, how just majestic and and ornamental worthy these plants are to add height. And I kind of call them like the fireworks of the garden because they're just so beautiful. Nothing else matches them. Right. And the fact that you actually get to eat something off of them is such a bonus. You know, but I would grow them even if they didn't fit yeah. any ears of corn and of course, this past weekend we spent gr- grinding sorghum, which has given me a whole new appreciation for having sugar <laughs> available to me at the grocery store. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's so amazing the way that you blog about it and you post um, often, and it keeps people interested and fresh. And I love to look at the, you know, the stages of the plants as they grow, and and. And you just make it so fun and accessible. And I think that's the most important part is you're like, everybody can do this and everybody can have access to what our grandparents ate and, and have a beautiful space as well. Like your passion is, um, infectious, is infectious. Very <laughs> and, and the focus, I appreciate that. So and Bri, I have very to say, um, I want to demystify growing plants. Yeah. I feel like if you, Start with a tomato, you're kind of starting at like a 
maybe a master's degree in horticulture, that if you were to start with a grain from seed, you would see how easy and empowering it is and then grow your interest. Sometimes I think in horticulture, in this profession, we tend to ignore the easiest steps and we overwhelm our audience who, in this generation, is really far removed from an intuitive knowledge of how to grow plants. Absolutely, We have to start somewhere basic and... You know, I often encourage people to learn with turf. I mean, they already have it, and it doesn't have to be a monoculture. It can be, you know, a biodiverse space that they mow with slightly less frequency, but it's at low cost just to engage them, make them feel more confident in their ability to keep plants alive. Uh I, I think there's a real issue with people being afraid to kill plants. Yeah. Well, and I think you make it fun, too. And one of the fun events that I actually am dying to come to is the tomato party that you have. Oh, you have to come next year. <laughs> what a hoot, because yeah. you are making cocktails and Bloody Marys and sauces and all kinds of, it's all tomato all the time for that month. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when I started this five years ago, about half of the people that attended said, I don't like tomatoes. Uh-huh. And I thought, now that's a bunch of nonsense because I know I've seen them eat pizza. Yeah. <laughs> and I know I've seen them eat salsa. So maybe they don't like a sliced raw tomato, but they do eat tomatoes processed. Yeah. So yeah. we've just started to expand it to show all the practical elements that growing tomatoes can provide for your yearly consumption of food. Mm-hmm. Um You know, and the Bloody Marys are definitely one of the best things. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I tell people now, Bloody Marys are the solution to processing tomatoes in an efficient, quick manner. (laughs) If you don't get all that excess liquid out, you're going to be cooking those tomatoes down forever. So if you go ahead and juice them and use those for a cocktail and then use the pulp to make paste and sauce and salsa, you've saved yourself like three hours right there. Yeah. I actually (laughs) saw a great, um, it was one of those like cooking hacks, you know, videos. And it was uh, from Epicurious. And it was a guy that was making the amazing tomato sauce that actually Carmen's father makes. And I drool over. And I was telling Carmen about this. He actually took a tomato, he sliced it in half, and he shaved it on a cheese grater and the and so it was this pulpy amazing juicy and he added some and and you didn't have to cook it he didn't because the pasta was hot so he added some salt and some really good olive oil and some pepper and he just tossed the hot pasta right in it and oh my god it looked you tried the recipe it looked it 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 I, I didn't try it, but it looked amazing, and it reminded me of the sauce that Carmen's father makes, which yes. is that same quick method. Yes, yeah, and I think quickness is key, Brie, you know, and, and I also love that you are talking about carbohydrates. I mean, we've gone through this phase of where carbs are bad, carbs are bad. We're talking about bread. This is like the <laughs> amber waves of grain, the staff of life. Yeah. You cannot, I'm sorry, okay, maybe if you're gluten intolerant or whatever, but People can't live without bread. That's what you I need more than protein. I'll tell you what's really exciting about this. I became more aware of grains and the need for carbohydrates because one of my parents' dear friends in southeastern Michigan has developed a really serious case of, of celiac. Right. And he's a wonderful gardener. And, 
you know, I, we we share ideas, and and he, you know, he's really been struggling. And as I started reading, a lot of the ancient varieties have a very low chromosome co- content. There are only 14 chromosomes to modern grains, which have 42 chromosomes. Mm. And science is really starting to show that the digestive issues are coming because it's a more complex carbohydrate system. So growing some of these ancient varieties could potentially lead to true alternatives for people struggling with gluten intolerances. And I think from a local agriculture perspective, that's reason enough to get people interested in growing them, even if it's in a small capacity. Um, you know, I, when I look at the suburbs, I've lived in the suburbs since I bought a house 10 years ago as a single woman working in plant propagation. I couldn't afford to live in a luxurious country pad. <laughs> I had to live in a, you know, a, yeah. a track development in the suburbs. Yeah. Right. And I see this massive amount of green space that isn't being utilized for anything. Uh-huh. The, the homeowners aren't using it. The plants, you know, aren't either they don't look good or they're plants that require excessive amounts of maintenance. And the suburbs are filled with sun, cultivated soil and irrigation systems. Yeah. And to me there's no reason that real produce couldn't be grown in these spaces and utilized as a community resource. Mm-hmm. Well, you, yeah, I, and that's that's what makes your project so great, is visually, it's gorgeous. Right. Um, intellectually, it's right on. It's exactly what we need to be thinking about. And your kind of like try it, try it, try it philosophy instead of just reading about it and and thinking it has to happen someplace else you're bringing it right to your front door literally like here it is here's what i'm doing everybody can do this and it can be really fun and it brings communities together you know like i see the pictures of the neighbor kids that are in your yard helping you and you've 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 changed you've totally changed the landscape of the suburbs, and that's what's what's brilliant about what you're doing. And influence, influencing the young children. I mean, you know, pe- people in New York don't have a lot of space, so they bring their kids to the park and they bring their kids to the botanic garden. But isn't it great that suburban kids can, yeah. you know, like participate in a deeper way, Yeah, you know, with their food? I think it's so... So amazing. And so you've started now, you've taken this knowledge and you've started Foodscaping University, right? Uh-huh. So you tell us, tell us about that and, and what, your, what those initiatives include. Well, it's been a really exciting time. And it's, it's been inspired because of the reaction that my neighborhood kids have had. And I said one day, guys, can you imagine if there was a service instead of daycare where they sit and watch movies and television and you know, space out to electronics where they were engaged in something in their own neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I brought this to the attention of a couple of different people in North Carolina, and we're now working together to create an after-school program that would be adopted in North Carolina elementary schools. So like an after-school care that's predominantly focused on maintaining foodscapes at their schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really exciting time. Um, you know, I've been teaching classes out of my home garden to interested homeowners, but I really think the hope of the future lies within creating a sustainable education system that embraces horticulture, food production, tying health and wellness to the garden, 
you know, we are going to be sustaining an enormous population of 9 billion people. And health and wellness through nutrition has to be acknowledged. And horticulture has the opportunity to be a part of it. And so my goal is really just to drive that home to every person in horticulture that not only is it an opportunity, it's a responsibility that we can all take on and really enhance everyone in, in our country and in our world by working together. Bree, have you um, have you read about the new school that Mark Zuckerberg is opening up in Palo Alto? Yes, because I wish he would come to, to Raleigh. Well, I think you need to go to him. I think you should just keep taking pictures and and tell him what you're doing. I think that could be just, I mean, that's exactly his school philosophy. They gave a ton of money to the Newark school system. They were very unhappy with the way it was spent because they really want to tie wellness and health into the education system. And I think what you were doing is exactly their mission. So maybe we could get some Zuckerberg money for you. (laughs) I like where you're going with this. Spreading the good word of horticulture to every facet of our society is my life's mission. Yeah. Well, it's so pleasurable to to speak with you. Um, We we have one, Carmen has one great question. Uh, Because we're we're plant and history geeks, both of us. So we we like to look forward, but we also like to look back. So we wanted to ask you today, if you could go back in time and meet any horticulturist or plant person of your choice from the past, who would you want to meet and and what would you ask them? (laughs) Well, I've thought about this question a lot. And my initial reaction was Linnaeus because I am obsessed with botanical Latin. Uh But really, my garden is full of treasures from Monticello. So Thomas Jefferson would be Ah, who I would want to be in touch with. And I would ask him, how in the world do I deal with these carbohydrate sources in a practical way (laughs) so that I don't feel like my arm is going to become disengaged from my body? (laughs) He would have, he would, he He would would invent some machine. Yes, he would. He would say, get a mule. <laughs> I'm sure that he trying could... to take these technologies to, to the suburbs is probably going to be my biggest challenge. And I'm really fortunate to have an extraordinarily handy, engineer-minded husband who takes my vision and, and actually creates things to implement it. Uh, but there's definitely still some work to be done to figure out how to harvest and process carbohydrate resources in small spaces. Yeah. Well, that, yeah. And that's, I think that's the next frontier. And um, it's going to be really fun to just watch you uh, keep cultivating and keep harvesting. Tell, uh, tell our listeners how they can find you and where are you speaking next and all that sort of stuff. Well, I have a busy website being built right now to be BreeArthur.com. It will launch in December. I have a full uh, a full schedule of travels uh, for next year. I will be at Monticello and Colonial Williamsburg, Philadelphia Flower Show. Um, so find me on Facebook or follow me on Instagram at Bree the Plant Lady. And you can follow any of the hashtags, Crazy Grain Lady or Suburban <laughs> Grain Experiment. <laughs> I love it. Bree, I, like I, I know you're coming to New York uh, later in the month uh, with the Garden Riders, so I will see you there. Um, I am thrilled. Yeah. I was just making some of my final plans to see the High Line in the Brooklyn Bridge Garden, so yes. I'm really excited. 
Great. Well, we look forward, I look forward to meeting you and uh, seeing you again in person. And it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today in, in your busy schedule. And I hope you make some good sorghum syrup. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be candying peppers tonight with my homegrown zero kilometer sorghum syrup. <laughs> oh, Brie, you, you make the suburbs fun. It's so great. Thanks. That's right. They're a desirable place to live. It, it can be. You've, you've shown us how it can be fun. Space is a good thing. <laughs> yes. Well, thanks for listening to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Um, we'll see you in the garden. Thanks for gardening. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Car- Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.